Sweet. All right, Steve Wozniak, everybody, the legend. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us, Steve, um, and, and so grateful to have you on. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah, so Steve, I mean, tell us how, um, how, I mean, tell us when you first had ambitions of starting a company. I mean, you ever think it would turn out to be like this? Yeah, the correct answer is never, although I've had a couple of startups since. Um, no, I had visions of being just a great engineer. You do great work. You make great things. You make a salary. And I got extremely skilled at certain one certain thing. And I especially wanted something for myself, my own computer, when it made no sense. There was no reason to want it or have it. And then at a certain point in life, there's law chip prices coming down. I'm working as a design engineer at Hewlett Packard. All of a sudden saw the formula for that computer of my own. So I didn't have to go to a company with a big old multi-million dollar computer and just be like a programmer using theirs. I can now, I get to my circuit simulations on my own machine. You know, I, I saw where it, where it winds up and starting a company i did want to share it with other people i wanted to share this design it was like 300 dollars, and you spend the work you wire it up yourself sort of ikea not not ikea style but worse than that real hand wiring not many people really want to do that in our homebrew computer club but my idea was well it's a affordable computer useful there were other little kids calling themselves computers but they were just glorified intel data sheets with switches and lights and push buttons to get data into memory. Uh, I built that thing five years before. So um, so I wanted to share my idea. I thought it was advanced and gave out all my designs for what eventually Steve Jobs wasn't around, but when he came around and saw the interest in it, it was not at all like that movie shows him dragging me out of a basement with my computer to show it off at a club. He'd never been to the club. He wasn't even in the state. I'd been to the club every day since it started. It was the most important thing in my life. And I'd even given out my designs to everybody and helped a couple of them build my computer. I would do the soldering myself to help them bring it up and test it. Um, so I, uh, so basically it wasn't, wasn't to start a company. And when Steve said, well, you know, the funny thing is for five years, he'd come into town every so often, see something that I had designed and he would turn it into money for himself or for us or a job opportunity. Um, so this was just sort of formalizing. We're going to call ourselves a company. And I was scared because I loved the company I worked for, Hewlett Packard. And I didn't want, I was going to be an engineer for life. Right. I mean, believed in engineers back then. We only made products that engineers used. And I was scared. So uh, I had to, first of all, I told Steve, I got, well, no, no, no. I, well, I'm not going to risk my job at HP. I'm going to tell them and see if they want to build it. And I failed. I got turned down five times. I wanted them to build the, the personal computer. So my idea was not to start a company necessarily, just doing something with a friend at that Apple one stage. The Apple two, I knew was a great design and um, showing that one off because I, I designed it from the ground up rather than just hastily modifying something designed it from the ground up to be a great color game as well as a computer computers and games had to go together nobody wanted a computer in their home for uh, inventory levels and the like apple II was the first time ever i had designed games for myself and for atari this was the first time ever that arcade games were going to be color they weren't before the apple II, and First time ever that games were software. A nine-year-old kid could write a game with moving things on a screen in you know a day instead of a skilled engineer like myself hooking up 
some chips and thousands of wires getting signals going at the right levels that a TV would understand. Oh my God, it was a, a huge change in simplicity, you know, design a game in, you know, one hundredth of the time. Yeah. So, so that was great. And of course, you know, and the idea was Steve really wanted to start a company more than myself, but I knew that this product was the one. Right. Hewlett Packard had continually turned me down, but some of my engineer friends said it was the best thing they'd ever product they'd ever seen in their lives. And, you know, but Steve was the only one I would do something with because we'd been a partnership for a long time. And he was a friend who even understood what I had in the world that was good. I was too shy to talk to most people. <laughs> yeah, no. So Steve, was, Steve was the pushing for them. He was the businessman. He had the spirit, the inspiration, and the drive for business. And he picked up, he really got into marketing from Mike Markla because since I was the engineer, Steve had to find his value and his value wasn't going to be engineering with me around. So his value really was understanding marketing, making business decisions, you know, learning how to do it. Um, right. We were young, both young and, and we had an adult in the family. Mike Markla invested in us and he told us, you hire a president. President, here's what the president does. You hire a head of account of accounting. Here's a head of operations. Here's what his role will be. Told us what the roles would be, and we would sometimes interview them and make hiring decisions. But uh, really, the adult in the family taught us even how to have a technology. We're in our young twenties. Right. Yeah. That that's crazy. So I mean, talk talk about like the risk that you had to take, right? Because you mentioned you had to leave HP, and I, I believe you dropped out of UC Berkeley, right, in order to pursue this full time. Uh, I mean, talk about that risk. Like, what was the reaction from fr friends and family? Were you, was there any hesitations going on through your head? I was so great at designing digital circuits for people. I did it all over California, you know, early hotel movie systems before there was one. I got to be the designer and I love doing that. Now, I, I didn't drop out of school. Drop out means that I don't want to go to school anymore. It's just that, okay, before my third year of college, I took a year off to work, to earn the money, to burden my parents with college expense. And I uh, bought a car. Well, I totaled the car during that school year, fell asleep on the freeway one night, two in the morning, the night I met Captain Crunch, the famous uh, phone freak. And, um, and so then after that year was over, you know, I was only taking um, upper division hardware and software design courses on the Dean's list. But after that year was over, I said, I'm gonna take another year off to earn the money for my fourth year of college and to um, buy another car, maybe. And so I started working, you know, as a technician for six months and then this incredible job at the best company in the world, Hewlett Packard, as a designing engineer without a college degree. They interviewed me and I could snap out any answer to any question having to do with digital logic, computers, registers, any architect, computer architecture. So, so I kind of had it made. Where's the risk? There really wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm risking. I mean, I'm going off and doing the exciting things. Look how many great companies started with people just out of college or dropping out of college, supposedly, you know, like Microsoft and Apple, Facebook, you can look at now and Google was similar. So we just see that out here. It's so astounding. And the big companies aren't moving on it. Right. Young people who have nothing have a, have a place in the world to do something and say we're doing something great because we weren't drowned out by the publicity machines. Big companies only thought computers would be used for big things. And right. uh, so that was partly lucky. And, and risk, well, to, to make the Apple one PC board, Steve and I had no, we had no savings accounts, no rich relatives. So once we decided we're going to make some Apple ones, you know, I have a design. 
and we'll make a PC board. Then people can go out and get chips from their companies, plug the chips in and solder it up in a day rather than taking, you know, a week of hundreds of wires and all that. Uh, we'll make it easy for them. And we had, so we had to pay somebody to lay out a PC board. And then we had to pay like $20 per PC board. We wanted a hundred of them. And well, we, we had to invest about a thousand dollars maybe, or less than a thousand. And it was a few hundred from me. I sold my most valuable possession, my HP 65 calculator. You know, I sold it for 500 bucks. Didn't get paid the full 500, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, because I, I knew that the next month we were coming out with the HP 67. My lead price would be 370. Jeez. So selling the HP 65 for 500, well, that's not a risk hardly. And uh, Steve sold, uh, his father had a bunch of cars and Steve sold um, sold a, a van, I think. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of carts. So I wound up buying one from him once when I had another <laughs> car totaled. And, yeah. uh, and so the risk really was pretty small, Steve on his own with nothing, not spending money. Um, once we got orders for Apple One, not PC boards, we were going to sell PC boards for $40 to individuals. Look, follow this design, hook and build your own. If, you, if you're a builder, stores were starting up. There were very few stores, only a couple in the whole Bay Area. And the local bike shop just wanted um, something kind of complete. People want to buy something that works out of the box. And Steve was the one talking to them. He was doing the, the marketing sales, all that stuff. I only did engineering. And... Um, and so they uh, now we had to we had to supply complete boards with all the chips on them. That cost two hundred fifty dollars per board, and we have zero money. I mean, we were zero. We had no place to, to borrow it from. We got one friend, father. This is Alan Baum and his father, Elmer Baum. Uh, his family loaned us five thousand dollars, and Steve worked a deal to get all the chips on credit. And the day that the company that made our PC boards. Since the PC boards were made, they pulled the chips out of a storeroom and 30 days started that we had to pay for them. And, they, and then they had all these assemblers, you know, back then it was, was all girls and they just plug the chips into place on the board and it would go over a wave soldering machine. That's how it was manufactured. It only cost us $13 to do all that assembly. Why sell it as a kit? You know, uh, we made it into an IKEA kit. You still had to get a keyboard, some power supply and a monitor, a TV, yeah. <laughs> TV yeah. set. But um, so, so Steve got 30 days credit and they wave soldered our boards and we Steve would drive down the car and bring the boards from this place in Santa Clara where they were made to the garage. And I would test them on an oscilloscope and find out what was wrong and fix shorted traces and fix pins that didn't go into the sockets right on the, on the ice season. Um, and then we, then Steve would put them in the car and drive them down to the bike shop and get paid cash, like $500 board. And, you know, we marked it up 30% to 666.66. Jeez, that, yeah, no, I saw that price too. I mean, you said you're a math guy, so you like the repeating digits. Uh, Actually, back then, the way I got into it was phone numbers. I had the most called single line number in the United States. The first dial-a-joke in the Bay Area, back when you could not own a phone. You could not own an answering machine. You could not buy one. And you had to rent the movie theaters using. The biggest expense for a young engineer is your apartment rental. This was half again as much as that but I believed in humor so much. I wanted to run this dialogue joke and I made really short jokes. So mm, 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 2000 a day, one after another, after another with no extension lines. That was the most, most called single line number in the United States. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Single line. 
that that's incredible. So, but but it, oh oh, but everybody everybody who called it, there were so many thousands of callers, kids. They would dial wrong numbers, and I'd get complaints that somebody's <laughs> you know husband needs to sleep in the day, works at night, and I'd switch yeah. the number, and then other people complained, and I finally started searching. I'll try out some good numbers. Two five five was a prefix in Cupertino. I went two five 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 five. Called the phone company. They said we're not assigning the five thousands. So I went two five five six 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 six. It was still available, and they gave me that one. That was my first good repeating <laughs> digit. And eventually, I got six digits in a row in Cupertino. Not long after that, nine nine six nine 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 nine. So that just got me into looking for these fancy little patterns. Yeah, it's a fun part of life. That that's awesome. I mean, between the Apple One, Apple Two, and the Macintosh, what what was, in your opinion, your your greatest accomplishment? I mean, the Apple One, it was like the first time you're seeing characters put on a screen. The Apple II, you're seeing the colors, and then the Macintosh was. I mean, look at where it is today. Um, I mean, what what is, in your opinion, like the the greatest accomplishment for you? How to look? Well, I look down to like difficulty sometimes, and for the Apple II, oh, the idea to how do you get generally took, I knew analog television. I knew how to repair color televisions, all these sine waves and differential calculus to design the circuits and mix them in different potentials. And it would take months to do. And an idea popped in my head of just setting a digital number, ones and zeros on a wire. One is high, zeros low, setting the zeros and ones on a wire into a TV. If you did it the right way, it would, every TV would think it was color even though it wasn't like all the mathematics, all the science that was in engineering books, but it would work. Oh my gosh, I had this dream. What if these games could be color someday? So that was a, quite an accomplishment. And that was the Apple II. That was our first logo was six colors. And that computer was our, our only successful product with revenues for the first 10 years of Apple, even past the introduction of the Macintosh by a few years. So that was you know, you, you have a product like that. You can start a big company and really get big and you can miss out on Apple threes and Lisa's and Macintosh. You can have a lot of failures financially, but still survive. So uh, that was the key to it. And I often say engineering wise, the Apple two was sort of my proudest, but in there, when I did the floppy disk, I don't know, my head for about 10 years was spinning out magic. that wasn't in any book because I took on projects with no money at the start. So I always had to figure out ways to almost use no parts. I couldn't afford parts. And I also had never done these things before. I'd never worked with a microprocessor, never worked with dynamic memory. I had to study all their timing sheets and then put them together in the most efficient way, unbelievable. And the uh, floppy disk was a key one of that. And the floppy disk tells a good story about motivation being more important than you know experience, having already done things, you know, knowing how to put them together. But we were in a staff meeting and we were going to get be allowed into CES show in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'd never been to Las Vegas. Oh, I dreamed of going there like everyone. Yeah. Young, you know, and only three people were going to go from Apple, three marketing people, Mike Markla, who ran marketing, our funder, Steve Jobs, and I think Gene Carter, our sales guy, were going to go. And I'm too shy to raise my hand and say, I'm a founder. I get to go. You know, I'm just not that way. I don't like to step over people. I don't know why in that staff meeting, I, I had never worked with any disc hard software in my life of any form. I raised my hand. I said, if we have a floppy disk, I knew that was one thing would help us if you could type run a program rather than look for a cassette with your program on it and plug that cassette into a cassette player. If you could just type run checkbook and the checkbook program ran. Be great. So I raised my hand. I said, if we have a floppy disk, can we show it? at this show in CES in Las Vegas. Mike Markless said, yes, it's two weeks away. 
and my head is spinning. If I can design a floppy disk controller and get to work enough software to be able to type run checkbook and it runs, uh, they have to take me. Right. <laughs> if we're going to show the. <laughs> However, I knew nothing about. Thank God, I knew nothing about disks in any format. What whatever. I just started studying short drive and some of the signals and what could I do. And I got rid of twenty of their chips they put on to make life easy. And I put in little little board of my own. Had eight chips in the end. And what you know, basically, you just want to send one little wire into writing data, one little wire that gets the data back. You have to study how it comes in these four microsecond segments. And I did put in what's called a little state machine that came from a class I'd taken at Berkeley to every clock cycle. Has the data gone from a zero to a one yet? Has gone to one and the state machine is full of little ones and zeros that take you to different states. Hard to explain, but man, it was perfect for two little $1 chips to do that kind of reading all the data and putting it into real bits that a computer could use. Um, uh, so I, I was very proud. That was a very uh, big accomplishment. Now the Macintosh, I believed in it so strongly. I mean, I went with Steve to Xerox Park Center. Whoa, once you have this machine, you'll never go back. It's a one-way door. And uh, I believe so much in, in the dreams that Steve was, was espousing. Um, I was on the Macintosh team and I had an airplane crash as pilot. And it was five weeks later, I came out of this type of forward amnesia where you're not storing memories. I didn't know time was passing, but nobody knew I had it. No doctors, no family recognized it. I came out of it. I talked myself out of it with logic one night, you know, asking my, my uh, fiance if I was dreaming or did I have a plane crash? Because uh, I'd gone down to the Macintosh group for some reason that day and Andy Hertzfeld said something about plane crash. And I'd say, oh, plane crash. I was, I'm in the plane crash dream. I can just turn around and walk away from Andy. And I decided, no, I'll play by the rules of my dream. I'll stay in it, in it here. But uh, I thought it was a dream. So I asked my fiance, did I dream or have a plane crash? She said, Steve, you were dreaming because I joke so much. I make so many crank jokes. I'm joking about things. So I felt my whole body couldn't feel. I didn't feel the tooth I was missing. I couldn't feel any signs of it. And I thought it out, thought it out. You, How do you, I remembered everything. Everything that day, getting around obstacles with my plane, um, reaching for the throttle, and my drops out before pushing it. And this is what happens when you get hit really hard. Stuff right. that hasn't sat in there long enough to become permanent gets knocked away if you get lesions near the hippocampus. So, so I couldn't remember if I took off. You can't remember a crash. Did it happen or not? And then I thought you wouldn't. I would never have forgotten landing in Santa Catalina. Never. Jeez. No prayer. And I don't remember it. So I jerked up, and all of a sudden, half my brain was storing memories, and half wasn't. And I always like to, you know, try to think about ways a brain works. It's like a computer, only so far beyond it. So that one, so I called up Steve Jobs and I said, said I've been that way for five, five weeks. And I said, look, Macintosh has the most creative people at Apple. My best friends are all on that team and they can do it fine. Even Burl, who never went to data college, can taught himself to design things as tightly as I do. So I'm gonna, this is my last chance. I'm going to go back to Berkeley. This was 10 years later. I'm going to go back to Berkeley and get my degree. And I, my name was famous, so I went under a fake name, and my Berkeley diploma says Rocky Raccoon Clark. That's who I was for a year, yeah. and it was a good year in my life. And and I actually have a real college degree, a lot of honoraries, but they aren't they aren't the hard one. It, that, no, that's awesome, man. And you're a prankster too, man. You're you're awesome. So I mean, yeah. Back to Tosh, though, I was on that group, and this idea that you look at the world the way a human does, Jeff Raskin started the Macintosh program. He had come into our company teaching Steve and I, you can use different chips and different products. And if you make it real easy for somebody who knows nothing, a computer expert can walk up and figure out how to twiddle ones and zeros. But if you make it for anybody, just a child or a spouse, 
Uh, you've done the world a great favor. You put the work in to make it work in a natural human way. So it's intuitive rather than forcing the human to change, to figure out how this darn technology works. And uh, the Macintosh sort of did that. You saw a screen that was called a desktop because human beings have desktops. Right. And you saw, you know, if you saw a picture of an icon that looked like a page, what did it do? <laughs> it painted. So, <laughs> I mean, all these things and little menu words at the top to suggest how you might solve your problem. Um, I love that. I believed in it so much. John Scully believed so much too. We all, we all at Apple said, this is the future computing and we're the leaders. And the only reason it failed is Steve wanted to be so famous for it that he jumped in too early rather than refining a machine with, with software, especially business software needed to, you know, start having sales right away. Uh, it had no sales and I mean, it went to 500 units a month. We built a factory that could do 80,000 units a month, 500 right. a month sales. And our stock dropped in by about a third, dropped about two thirds its value in a week, in a couple Jeez. of days to a week. That's scary, scary stuff. And you have to revive your company. And thankfully, people really believed in the Macintosh, John Scully mainly. He believed in it so strongly. He worked and sent all of our resources. First of all, he kept the company alive for the right. time it was going to take to build the Macintosh into the future of the world. And then he sent reps to every university that might want 50 of 50 Macintoshes or every company that might want 50. And, and we'd give them special deals and we give away money basically. But we, we also, we even paid Microsoft to write a spreadsheet. Not Excel, before Excel. We paid the money because we needed to say, we have a spreadsheet for business users, small business guys. We needed something. Worked hard for three years and eventually the falling Apple II sales and the rising Mac sales um, intersected. And, and wow. it was our future. But yeah, it wasn't like there were people against Steve Jobs or against the Macintosh. Right. things. It's like they were willing to do the It took a lot of work. Absolutely. So did you think like that Super Bowl ad, the 1984 Super Bowl ad had an impact on... on the rise of that as well? Oh, uh, well, first of all, I was all pro. Mac Macintosh approaches so much human for the, the remainder of life. Um, doesn't mean you buy one day one. Doesn't mean that it goes day one. But Steve called me over to the Mac division one day. I worked in the 2-3 division. and called me over one night. Maybe I, was, maybe I was off doing my remote control project at the time of my own. But I came in, I came in, he set up the Umatic um, VCR of the, those days and and I want you to watch this. And I watched that commercial and I was just stunned because I very much love the fantasy, the science fiction, the way it was presented, this message, you know, that was, we're going to break open the windows to the world for, you know, type of freedom. And uh, I said, wow. I said, are we going to show this at the Super Bowl? And he said, well, the board voted it down. And I'm naive. I don't know business and all this. They voted it down. And he said, why? And he said, well, it, um, you know, it's kind of any business and it costs, you know, $800,000. And I sat there and in my, I was struck so emotionally by how good this ad was. I said to Steve, this is so naive. I actually believed it was possible to do this sort of thing. I said, I'll put up $400,000 if you put up $400,000 and we can show it. I didn't realize, I mean, Apple is a, is a big company. They own it, not Steve and I, um, but, um, but I, I made that offer to him. I, I hope the about it eventually, because eventually they did uh, prove it. But that's because the guy who made the ad, Stephen, oh, Hayden or something, I forget. Uh, he, um, uh, or maybe it was Hayden was the name of the company that did it. And he basically, the board said, sell off the time slot they'd bought for the Super Bowl. Okay. And, he, and he just sort of made sure we didn't, weren't able 
off for some reason. So we still had the time slot and luckily it got shown. Um, yeah, that was, but the, yeah, the, the emotional, the motions in to me are always more important than any logic. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's the biggest, the toughest part. So, uh, I mean, what, so did you leave permanently to pursue the, uh, the remote, uh, to, to pursue that full time? Um, I've, I've, well, I've never left Apple permanently. I've been on the payroll every week since we started the company and I still am. Now I left at that time um, to do the, uh, shortly after that, I left to do the remote control. I, well, I'd taken time off and gone, gone to school, of course. And I came back as a, as a senior engineer in the Apple II division. And then I decided I was to, um, this remote control was a neat idea. Nobody had remote controls back then. You had a TV and a VCR, two remotes. That's all anybody had. And there was one hi-fi in the world that had a remote control, a Bang & Olufsen. I had that hi-fi and for my sound. And there was um, Laserdisc. Not many Americans got into Laserdisc, like in Japan and, and in Europe. I had a Laserdisc player, a fourth remote. Wow. And satellite TV didn't exist. Built this huge dish, had some help from a guy who was more into the radio end of things. Built a huge dish at my house, aim it at satellites, and the receiver could twit pointed at a certain satellite and a certain channel and you could get all this stuff was just up there for free all the movies the showtime and hbo there were about five movie channels back then but there were no subscription there were no subscriptions they hadn't thought of you know people actually having their own big huge you had to have the big dish right. and that, that was another remote control is built the receivers built by a guy in canada so i had five remotes and i'm switching around to operate from the bedroom my tv and i thought well, what if i put them all onto one and my idea was kind of clever, actually. It was yeah. you build this device that you can point a remote control at it, and your remote control sends a signal into the into the receiver, and it, it figures out the timing of the pulses of infrared. And then when you push a button on it, it can re-emit those pulses. And I could train it one signal from this remote, one signal from that remote, and another from the from the audio system. And then I could push one button da, 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 and send out all the signals and do them all. So it was like a little computer in your hand based on the code for the Apple II, actually. That's incredible. That's crazy. I mean, you know, it's so interesting that you brought that up because like in the movies, they mentioned like, like they depict it as like you and Steve had this combat, like, and you guys were sort of arguing and gotten this disagreement. I mean, it sounds like you guys had a pretty good relationship moving on. Like as you continued that project with the remote control, uh, I mean, talk, talk about that relationship. Well, well, first, I don't think Steve even knew. Um, I don't I guess he knew I was leaving. He heard it from other people. See, I didn't work in the high ends of the business. I wasn't around him. I decided to. I decided I'm going to be open about this. I don't want Apple thinking I'm leaving to start a company to do something competitive. So I drew all my designs on a whiteboard, like what I just described to you for, um, uh, oh, Wayne... I'll think of his name, but he was heading up the Apple II III division then and uh, and wrote me a nice letter, wish you well, this and that. And I still an Apple employee, still an Apple employee. Um, and Steve heard about it. Then he, we never had an argument because I don't argue with anybody. I just, I'm going to be, I want to be liked by everyone in life and never have enemies uh, and that sort. Um, but I read an article in the Wall Street Journal where they didn't, I had told them I'm leaving to do a remote control. And I, I, I pointed out, I pointed, excuse me, sir. Uh, so I pointed out a, um, a, a shareholders meeting where we'd hardly mentioned the Apple II and it was all of our revenues and to the reporter. And he made it sound like that's the reason I had for leaving, even right. though I told him it wasn't. It was really to do the new product I was excited about. Well, Steve 
you know, saw what he read and it got picked up by every other reporter and every other book to this day that I was upset about the, the Macintosh versus the Apple II or something like that. And I, I did, I made a strong phone call to John Scully, not just me, to John mm -hmm. Scully, sort of giving him the blame. Why do we have a shareholders meeting? You don't even mention the Apple II. And I'm around a whole bunch of engineers and executives for the Apple and they're stomping their feet. They're ready to quit. They just can't believe what they heard. You know, and so I spoke up for them because I had a voice and I even hung up on John Scully at one one phase and I'm sure it had a big effect and it gets, gets played out in movies. Um, right. at one little phone call, basically, but it was never between me and Steve directly. I, I just don't talk that way to friends. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, but Steve, one day I set off to do the remote con remote control mm. and I went down to Frog Design that was doing a lot of creative design for us. And, oh, you design things for other people. Why don't you design some some uh, some cases for this remote control I'm thinking of? And they so they, they set out with some designs. Well, Steve came by on his bicycle one weekend because I had to overhear this conversation. I was on a line between my partner, Joe Annis, and uh, Wolfgang, uh, oh, what the guy, the guy at Frog Design. Um, okay. I usually remember his name, but I'm not going to yeah, yeah, no, so just thinking it out right yeah, now. Yeah, no, it's all good. And that, that's crazy. I so, that, I mean, and he described how Steve came by on his bicycle. And then Wolfram Wolfgang, or whatever his name was, he showed Steve, uh, hey, what, what, look at this, what you're doing for your partner, you know, Steve Wozniak. And Steve Jobs threw him against a wall, said, put him in a box and ship him to me. Everything you do, I own. Wow. Or Apple owns, something like that. It was, and I was silent on that call and listening. And that was a tough one. How could a human being do these sort of things? And Steve did it regularly. I didn't see it all the time because I wasn't around him, but I heard from others of how he treat people. It's um, some people can just treat him so rudely, like, Others don't matter. That was right. that was wrong. He, yeah, but he was wrong in his judgment that I was leaving Apple out of some some not liking what he was doing with Mac or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do you feel like he like how do you feel like he changed over the years? I mean, you worked with him for so long. Like, there's always this depiction of him, whether in the movies and or or whatever, of him being the the tough guy. Um, you know, was, was he always like that from when you met him and and uh, whenever you stayed in touch with him or? Oh, I've run to a lot of CEOs that can be tough and nice. And he could be tough and very rude and crude. I mean, basically, even politicians can get that way. And um, people talk about there was a time when we started Apple. Steve was a very tough, tough, tough guy. And he went away and he came back a little milder. Steve one and Steve two. I knew Steve zero. That's what's in my heart. And even near the end of his life, he was calling and talking about those days and, and he, it was coming back to him. The fun we had as kids, the first day I met him, he was 16 years old. He didn't have any record albums. I brought him to the house and showed him all the Bob Dylan albums up to that point in time. And the liner notes, strange, strange interviews. Dylan talked like a weird poet you couldn't understand. And then the lyrics to the songs. And we followed him and we went and, and followed Dylan memorabilia and people who had written brochures about him. We went to concerts together and, you know, we just did all these fun things. We did the blue boxes together, a little technology right. and make calls all over the world. And, and I drove him to college at Reed College. I'm the one who drove him there and, and his girlfriend at the time and watched him sort of decide not to attend, just to sort of sit in a dorm room in a tent and <laughs> I, I could never have done something that far out of the ordinary, but he was more independent minded. And, um, and that's Steve Jobs, the way he spoke in his voice, 
hear it. And he was searching for clues to be somebody important in the world, but he didn't have any academic excellence or, you know, really work excellence. He didn't really have the path there except me. Right. So and I'm glad for that. And like I said, I wouldn't have taken that Apple II with anyone but my friend, Steve. Yeah, no, I mean, what was the most intense moment for you with Steve? Was there one moment that you were like, man, this is, this is legit. Like, you know, he's very serious about this. And, you know, like, was there no. a time where, where no, it was, it was the obvious thing to do. He'd been for five years. I said before Apple, he'd been turning. Oh, no, it's fine. He'd been, <laughs> he'd been turning my designs into money for both of us and that sort of thing and finding ways to, to sort of market us. So here he said, well, let's start a company, make some money off of this little design that became the Apple one. It wasn't the computer. It wasn't even designed as a computer by me. I had already built a terminal that worked with my TV that could type onto the ARPANET. The ARPANET's the forerunner of today's internet. We have billions of computers on today's internet. The ARPANET started financed by the US government and there were six computers on it, six university computers. But I could pop around, my gosh, and I could choose which computer to go to, log in as a guest and read files and play programs, even chess on a computer at MIT. I mean, that was incredible. And then I said, I saw the formula. Well, these microprocessors have gotten better since I first looked at them years ago. And we, of course, we used equivalent of microprocessor in our calculators at Hewlett Packard that right. I designed. Just right. pop a microprocessor on, that's the brains, and then memory. But the trouble is you don't have a computer unless you can write programs. It takes 4K of memory to have computer programs. And all these kits were coming out with 256 bytes of memory to be affordable. And they couldn't use dynamic memory. They had to follow an Intel data sheet. You can only show microprocessor, um, all the address pins go to the address pins of the same name on the, on the RAM chips, the static RAMs. Right. Dynamic RAMs forget a bit of their data within two thousandths of a second. So you've got to keep getting in and sending in special addresses that keep them always reading and writing every bit of data that's in it while they're doing other work. That, well, that's nothing, I'm an engineer. That was yeah. costing me about five chips. So to get 4K of RAM, I used the new 4K dynamic memories that came out that summer of 75. It took mm. me eight chips, eight chips to get 4K bytes. And, but here's with static memory, it took you 32 chips. And I always counted my designs by how simple or how few chips and how little money. And I was saving, it was one fourth as expensive, one fourth as many chips, I saved 24 chips. Who cares if I have to add five chips back in to pop in some regular addresses. And I had regular addresses coming from counters for my, my television horror and vertical video signals. So, uh, you know, I double up chips whenever I can. No, that was, a, that was a, a hasty design, but all I said was now I can type, instead of typing to a computer in Boston, I'm typing to my own little computer here. Had to write some software for it. And then it can type back to me. Writing the basic language was much harder job for me than any of the hardware, Apple One, Apple Two, disk or anything. That a huge job. I had never taken courses in writing computer languages, but if you didn't have a computer language for kids to solve their write, write programs on, you didn't have a useful computer. And I'd never used basic in my life. Nice. But I said, basic's the language you got to have. It's got to be so simple, simpler than Fortran and Algon PL1, the ones I used. And how do I write a language? And I had some guy from some Xerox data sheets I'd seen from a guy who went to MIT and sent me copies of some of his book pages. And that was Alan Baum. And then I, um, and so I sat down with some really good ideas to organize it, unbelievable organization. I wrote it all by hand. The entire code, 8K of code, including 4K of the basic that was in the Apple II computer, I wrote the instructions, machine language instructions, load register, shift left, right, one, this set care. I, I, I wrote these all by hand 
And then I figured out, normally you type it into a computer and the computer turns it into object code, ones and zeros that a computer can actually run. I had to use little sheets, little to look at, and I had to write the ones and zeros that it equated. Then I could tie, I wrote enough of a program on my machine, I could type zeros and ones, hexadecimal, base 16, when it was a lot faster. Type it and type it and type it in for 40 minutes and I could get 4K of code in with really not an error. I mean, I was that good a typist and I'd do it super fast. I even do it right in the middle of, of uh, Homebrew Computer Club meetings <laughs> so I could get in enough that I could add a little feature and test it out and this and that. And I was yeah. showing that off every week. That basic language um, for somebody before, I was very proud of it. Uh, you know, and, and Bill Gates and Paul Allen had written a basic language for the Intel microprocessor. I was writing it for the 6502 and uh, I was right on track. <laughs> no, absolutely. But I wanted it for myself, <laughs> not for a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, did you, how often did you and Steve like reminisce on like, you mentioned like Steve zero, Steve one, Steve two, like how often did you guys reminisce on like starting out in the garage? I mean, as years went on, uh, as, well, as the company grew. Steve Zero, Steve would call me sometimes when he was near death. And I, and I thought he just meant, well, he's sick. And you know, when you're sick, you have a lot of ideas that you can't accomplish. And I told him, you are judged on what you did while you're alive and not what you didn't do because you're not. I didn't think he was dying, you know, within a few days, even on one of the calls. And he's just started talking about, do you remember when we did this or that? You know, like they were pranks and funs when Steve Zero, I mean, we'd sit at a pay phone and be doing all sorts of pranks together or pranks on each other. I remember once <laughs> I, I rigged up the uh, the two pay phones at our old high school cafeteria. You go, we'd go in at midnight and you kick this one button and they both get dial tones. And it was fun. But we'd be sharing this one blue box and he'd make some calls, you know, to a girlfriend or something. I, I went in, I just went to an operator and had her make an emergency interrupt to this line thinking I was an operator. And she, I had her make it from, um, oh, I think it was George Alex. That was the name of the chief special agent of the phone company in San Jose. Steve hung up his phone so fast. He said, we have to run. They're, they're right there here. And I'm laughing, I <laughs> know they're not here. <laughs> Oh my God! That's you know those kind of those kind of times when we had fun. Steve Steve also had found out how we could uh, the the parents during graduation sit out on the football field, and the students that are graduating are in the the bleachers, and he had found out how the sprinklers of the of the school work, and we went down at midnight once with a, a little lockpick friend from Berkeley, a phone freak named. And he tried to pick his way in. He couldn't quite get into the shed. So I climbed up on top and I could move a part aside and get in, but I could only get into the half of the shed that wasn't where the, the sprinkler controls were. Right. Yeah, but that was a good idea. We had some good ideas and we had some other pranks we, we'd pull off. Uh, this was a different Steve Jobs. Here's yeah. the thing. Personality settles for life. And when you're between 18, 23, that's when we were starting big money. Now Steve was founder of a company with big money. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was going to, he, everyone to be somebody important in life. He was going to take control and eventually sort of run the company and make sure that every, the word out was it all came from his own head. And I didn't mind. I was so shy. Leave me alone in engineering. I don't uh, want any press or any of that stuff. And so I got, what, he got what he wanted. And, but his personality became this very, I know more than everyone. I have to push everyone around. I have to prove that I know what to do. And the funny thing is all he did was have failures after failure for a long time. That's crazy. I mean, what an incredible story. I mean, what advice would you give to younger entrepreneurs? I mean, I'm trying to start my company right now. And so, I mean, having this conversation is like incredible. I mean, what advice would you give to younger people? Sure. Well, I would, I would ask an entrepreneur, what was your company going to do? 
And are you one of the ones who would want to use it? Are you in that category? Do you know what you would like and what you would call elegant, simple, usable that you would you would like? Oh, if there were a bunch of products that did what yours is going to do, do you know exactly what will make one of them so much more desirable? And then your market is one person yourself. And it can be right. Look at Elon Musk and the, the Tesla. What engineer would have ever built a large EV? And now he's changed the world with it. Um, you know, the, just the batteries didn't make any sense. Or Steve Jobs and the iPhone. Every little detail had to be right for him and not for a technical engineers can come up with idea, 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 and never stop. No, he had to keep it simple enough to actually use from day one. And this great, you know, my Apple too, being a game machine. I was so into games. Yeah. So, so if you're one of the, the users, if you are the market, um, rather than thinking, I wonder what the market would like for this idea. Also, I, I tell entrepreneurs, you're going to need three elements that we had with an Apple. You're going to need drive to be successful, to make money, you know, to change the world. But you're also going to need marketing to know what is worthwhile and what is not. And what can I sell? And what can I sell it for? And where does it make sense? And you're going to need the engineering. And oftentimes people like to learn how to go to business school and they learn how to write a business plan, entrepreneurial colleges, write a business plan, raise some money from venture capital. And then we'll find some engineers somewhere to hire, you know, maybe local, maybe somewhere else in the world. And I don't believe in that. I believe that engineers are so clever and thinking out, here's what another possibility is. The person's going to write the code or design the hardware to think of, oh, and here's something else you could do that's even, that's even um, you know, more amazing. So if you get a good kind of engineer, the type that's a builder, the type you run into at maker fairs, um, then, then you, but don't leave that to an afterthought. Yeah, no, absolutely. Looking back on your journey, do you have anything you'd like to change or no? I mean, just oh. about that. No, no, because I, I, I had formulas when I was 20 years old. When my personality settled, I had formulas who I was going to be for life, never chasing money, never letting myself be corrupted in any way. Values are more important. And I stayed uh, true to that. Um, coming up with my formulas of how to have happiness, you know, comedy, humor, play pranks, and go to and listen to music and enjoy life and don't frown. Happiness is smiles minus frowns and your life's about happiness. The day you die, was I out there laughing with some friends on the street talking about a joke or a prank? Or was I this, I read a, I read a book on Sumner Redstone, a magazine article when I was about 20. And here he was selling $50 million companies right and forth, back and forth a long, long time ago. And I thought, would I wanna be a guy that winds up in that big, huge money, category of life and I said no I'd rather be the joker you know even I'm on the street just joking with friends with no money at all right. and uh stay true to that that was more important to me than um you know any having apple computer any right. starting personal computers any of that success right I mean um, because because Steve probably was like you probably noticed like he was probably more serious as the years went on as well right I mean did you no 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 Right from the start, he wanted to make money. And the reason he wanted to make money and focused on it wasn't that he was totally driven by making good products. He wanted money so you can grow and become somebody bigger and more powerful and make more products. Right. And, you know, really make more changes. I've got to get going. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I ran through it. All right, yeah, no, sorry. Thank you so much. Um, Did you feel like you pushed the limit at all at that last minute or no? I guess that was uh, what I was going to say. If I put the limit? Yeah, like he put like pushed too hard for happiness, or like he was just so. Focused. Oh no, no, no! And, and one thing was, don't you don't want to frown. Happiness right. is smiles minus frowns. Don't argue with anyone because you'll never convince them to your logic. You'll just wind up unhappy. 
Right. You can think one way, they can think another way. And you're both good people because you have rules, like scientific rules for coming up with your end. And you can both be good. I even go back to songs and I find words in Dylan's songs and Dave Mason's songs that, you know, speak to that fact. I relate a lot of myself to poetry and songs. Right. Um, so, so it was, um, you know, I don't know. It was just, I, w I was lucky. Also, uh, you don't want to frown. So you don't want to look back and say, oh, if I'd only done something different. I'm frowning. No, I, my head was working for that, especially the 10 critical years of my life. My head was working every step of the way, making decisions on all the right elements and making the right decisions that my head was working so well. I, I just don't find, I wouldn't find any faults, but I just don't ever go back anyway. You want to go forwards. And a lot of people talk, and Steve Jobs did talk that way, you know, no, we only want to deal with the future. But I don't think he wanted to go to the, a lot of the back that people like isn't necessarily him and Macintosh. It was, you know, how did this company start? You know, which is where you started today. And a lot of people are interested in that, but that involves me a lot. And I've always been sort of <laughs> left out of Steve's press. No, no, you're, you're the man. You're the man, dude. So thank you so much, Waz. I mean, thank you. Um, if there's any way I can support you in any way, reach out whenever. Um, if there's anything you need at all, I'd love to support. So um, yeah. grateful. So thank you so much. And, if you want, I'll send you one. <laughs> okay. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye, Steve.